You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Ronaldo came to Dublin last night. One of the world's most well-known and well-paid sports stars led his Portugal soccer team to the Aviva Stadium but were held scoreless by Stephen Kenny's Irish team and left shirtless by young Dublin footballer Addison Whelan. 11-year-old Addison ran onto the pitch, as John was telling us, at the final whistle, heading straight for the Portuguese captain and was given his shirt. And Addison joins us now. Hi, Addy. Good morning. Morning, everybody. Thanks for taking our call today. Yeah. Take to take me uh, take me through what happened. You broke through from the crowd at the end of the game, and tell me about coming onto the pitch. So, first of all, I jumped over the barrier because I was in the second row. So I jumped over the first row and over the barrier. Then I sprinted onto the pitch, but. There was like security guys running behind me and then there was another two coming from the other corner. So I was just sprinting. So then when I seen the other two coming from the other corner, I ran more towards the halfway line. So then I could like swerve around them. But then they caught me and then I was just like screaming. I was just like screaming, screaming Ronaldo's name. Now, did he hear you? Did he turn? I I was watching you from up in the in the uh, in the upper west, and he turned around and he saw you. Isn't that right? He turned around and he saw me, and he was telling them to leave to leave me. And what happened then? So then I was just like calling him over, and I was and he came over to me, and then I was just like in shock, and I was like crying, and I was like, "Can I have your jersey, please? Please, I'm a big, huge fan." And he was saying like he was saying, "Are you okay?" and everything. And he gave you his shirt? Yeah. And he gave and you a when, hug as well? Yeah. When my dad seen the, him taking off his shirt, my dad's fake was, face was just in shock. <laughs> what were you thinking when he was giving you the shirt? I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is my dream and it's finally coming through. On, his la- on probably his last time playing in Ireland. Did he say anything else to you? He was like, uh, he said, I appreciate that and everything. Oh, that was really nice of him. And I mean, you were in the ground. You you heard that every time his name was mentioned and every time he got the ball, there were huge boos, except when he gave you his shirt. I know. And what happened after that? Did the stewards give out to you or or what did they say to you? No, the stewards were just like, no, they were just, they weren't giving out to me. No, they were just holding me by the arms and saying, where did you come from? Like, which way did you come from? Because you were watching, you probably saw earlier on during the game when Ronaldo had a header that nearly scored. There was another, um, there was another person from the crowd who tried to try to get to him as well, and, and they didn't get anywhere near him. Yeah, no, because he was like the fellow that went before me. He he didn't really get anywhere near him, and Ronaldo like dodged out of his way. <laughs> so I was like, I was like nervous. I was like, what if he does that to me? Tell me, where's the shirt now? The shirt is right beside me. <laughs> have you tried it on no I don't want to try it on <laughs> <laughs> now you're not at school this morning at St Joseph's and you're in fifth class isn't that right Daddy? yeah are you I'm going to school, school later on today no are you too busy taking calls from people like me to be going to school yeah <laughs> okay now I want to talk about you as a footballer because you're not just a footballer you're a very good footballer because I've seen you play. Tell us about who you yeah. play for. You play for Shells, isn't that right? I play for Shells under 13th. And, and you have play for another squad as well. Alan, Johnny and Peter. And Peter's your dad. You play for another squad as well. You've been picked to play for a Dublin squad, isn't that right? Yeah, that's me, MGL. And now, and I, I've seen you play, Addy, because you've played against my daughter Lucy, isn't that right? Yeah. Against Bose? And you're due to play them again soon, isn't that right? Yeah, I think so. We need to play them again, don't we? Now, listen, can I ask you this? Because I know how good a footballer you are. Is it time for you, perhaps, to move up to a better team? Is it time for you to move to Bowes? Never. Really? <laughs> Shells is back. <laughs> and where do you hope to play eventually? Well, my dream is to go on to the Arsenal team or or the Ireland's women. Oh, fantastic. Well, listen, good luck, Addy. I, I'm sure you're going to, to get your will to play for those big teams because I've seen you play and you're a terrific footballer and well done last night. Thanks.
Thanks a million for talking to us. That's Addison Whelan, 11-year-old Addison Whelan, who has Ronaldo's shirt after his appearance. Probably, as Addison said, his final appearance in Dublin last night. And the big news at COP26 yesterday was that China and the United States announced a joint initiative to deliver enhanced climate action. Addressing the conference, the US Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry, confirmed that both countries, which have the world's two largest economies, have agreed to work together to raise climate ambition for this decade. My Chinese counterpart, Xia Zhenhua, whom you just heard from, he and I first talked in February after President Biden was sworn in. And our teams have worked together for months, meeting more than 30 times, both virtually and in person. And we have worked in good faith, and we found common ground. And we understand how important it is that we continue that work. So tonight, I am pleased to announce, on behalf of President Biden and Secretary Blinken, that we have agreed to a basic framework for this cooperation going forward. That was John Kerry. Franz Timmerman is Vice President of the European Commission. He's also the EU's lead negotiator at COP26. This was his reaction last night to China and the US joint initiative to deliver that enhanced climate action. Well, I think it's very good news that uh, the US and China would see eye to eye on which is the most important subject for humanity to tackle. Um, I think they show through this leadership that they understand this issue transcends other conflicts they might have. And they all should give us an impetus here at COP to come to a positive conclusion by the end of this week. So, you know, uh, agreeing on reducing methane, agreeing on reducing CO2, bringing in new technologies that could help us uh, reach our goal of 1.5 degrees. I think that's good news if, uh, if the United States and China agree on that. And it could help us uh, come uh, to a, a positive conclusion by the end of this week here at COP. And that's the EU's lead negotiator, Franz Timmerman. I'm joined by Dr. Tara Shine. She's director of Change by Degrees, which advises companies and organisations on sustainability. Dr. Shine, good morning. Good morning, Mary. So we have the world's two biggest polluters now, the US and China, signing that agreement to do more to cut emissions. Is this or could this be a game changer? Yeah, so the leadership of the two biggest emitting countries in the world is really important. It's very, very hard for other countries, particularly developing countries, to be signing up to ambitious commitments to reduce their emissions, to invest heavily in adapting to climate change if they don't see the biggest emitters leading. It just feels really unfair. So their leadership is important in terms of them um, doing their fair share, but it's also how they're going to use that leadership and the action that they take in their respective countries to help other countries that need to lead more to step up. So how they use now their diplomacy based on the leadership that they're giving to get India, Russia, Brazil to do more alongside them, that's going to be really interesting to see. And yes, in the lead up to the ending of COP um, tomorrow, but also, you know, throughout the year and next year as we implement, um, the, you know, implement and get on with the action, get on with reducing emissions, which is the most important thing. You told Rachel in Glasgow at the start of, of COP26 that you were hoping for something new. You said a big idea, a new ambition. As we now come to the closing stages of COP um, and you look back, did you get it? Mm, I don't think so. I think what I see looking at the different texts is that some of the issues that you know, the, the, the climate community has been fighting for for a long time, get their recognition. So we get a strong recognition in the text that 1.5 degrees Celsius is safer than 2. Um, it recognizes the contributions of young people, indigenous people, local communities. We have a focus on land and nature um, as well as oceans. Just transition makes it in there. Um, there's a need to, for countries to go back and revisit these contributions, these NDCs that they make, and to create long-term strategies and so all of those things are 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 good but i you know if i was a a young person reading this agreement i would say where's the part that says that we're not going to use any more fossil fuels that we're going to phase them out and that's missing and there is a commitment to start to think about like phasing out fossil fuel subsidies and phasing out coal but it could it could be so much stronger um, and, of course, there are a number of elements that have yet to be agreed as the negotiations go on. So 
in terms of a great big new idea, it's not there yet, but, you know, we are getting more attention on non-CO2 uh, gases like methane. That's really good. Loss and damage, the issue that is most important to the most vulnerable countries, gets more prominence but still needs more detail and crucially needs more finance. And I said on that first day that climate finance would be absolutely central to the final agreement, and that remains so. We still have to see the decision that comes out around creating a new climate finance goal and on what more will be done around the 100 billion um, to achieve that commitment. Uh, so, Tara, so, apologies for interrupting you, right, Tara. Stay on. with me. I, I want to move on to comments by former President Mary Robinson. And of course, you're a former advisor to her mm-hmm. foundation. Let's have a listen first to Mary Robinson speaking yesterday at COP. She became emotional in her assessment of world leaders. She said uh, they were not in crisis mode at COP26. So I'm saying to the leaders who are here now, this is on your watch. Sorry. It's so important. You know, we are literally talking about having a safe future. And, you know, the elders are pressing the leaders. Um, understand, um, this, you can't negotiate with science. You can't talk about a glass being half full. We have to get it down. We have to be on track for 1.5, and it is doable. Tarash, very emotional there at, at, at a failure by, by leaders to give that very leadership. Do you agree with her? Absolutely. I mean, you know, Mary's, Mary's showing a bit of vulnerability, um, and she's showing that she emotionally cares about the issue. And imagine if all of the male leaders of all of the countries at the UNFCCC if they cared as much as that, they would, they would come and they would act differently. You'll see a great photo going around from yesterday where a whole pile of women leaders took the stage in COP and they staged an alternative photo to the official photo, which uh, was of a whole sea of men in matching black suits. And, it, and you know, asking the question, who, who do you think is going to lead us out of this? So we do need a completely different style of leadership. The leadership style we have right now, modelled by some of the most significant male leaders in the world, is not going to solve this problem. On this, I, I completely agree with Mary. Um, so we have to find a different way of leading. We have to lead, yes, with economics in mind, but also with empathy for our fellow human being and empathy for the citizens in our own countries because it will always be the most disadvantaged and marginalised that will be hardest hit by climate change. Um, and that has to remain front of mind. And constantly going back to the basics and the science and saying, so if we warm this planet by any more than 1.5 degrees, we pass on to our children a ruined world to live in. And that isn't good enough. That's what gets me out of bed every day. I refuse to pass on to my two kids a future that is significantly worse than the one that I had the opportunity to grow up in. And tapping into that emotion is a really important part of being an effective leader. We need to see more of that powering um, what the main leaders of the world are doing in COP. And now, in the next two days, there's still time to see that. I'm not sure you often find common ground with Boris Johnson, but would you agree with him in what he said yesterday that, you know, countries have spent the last six years since Paris patting themselves on the back and trying to wriggle out of concrete commitments? Yeah, there's a lot of wriggling that goes on. He's probably, he might be um, a little bit practiced at it himself. Um, but, you know, this is, the, the, the eyes of the world are on them all. The eyes of the world are on the UK presidency. They're on the leading developed wealthy countries to come to this table and do more. A UN, UNDP report, United Nations Development Programme report that came out just before COP showed that the most ambitious um, NDC's commitments to, the, to climate action came from the most vulnerable countries, came from the poorest countries, did not, did not come from the wealthiest countries. And that's just not good enough. That's not leadership. So this is the time to lead. This is the time for those leaders, those ministers who are over there today to be thinking about what more can we get out of COP? It's still time. Um, and use the, the um, momentum created now by China and the U.S. showing that despite their differences and lots of other things, climate change is too important not to find common ground. Well, a lot to do in the next couple of days and we'll hear more from COP26 a little later on. For now, Dr Tara Shine, thank you very much for joining us on Morning Ireland. 
organisation representing most manufacturing businesses north of the border says the vast majority view the Northern Ireland Protocol as an opportunity rather than an obstacle. They reject claims by unionist politicians that it's damaging the economy. This comes amid growing signs that Britain could trigger Article 16 of the Protocol, something which would effectively suspend the North's special Brexit arrangements and have significant consequences for EU-UK relations. Our Northern Editor, Vincent Kearney, has visited three businesses in counties Antrim, Down and Derry. Manufacturers form the backbone of Northern Ireland's economy. Stephen Kelly is Chief Executive of Manufacturing NI, which represents many of them. It's everything in Northern Ireland, from those that make airplane wings to chicken wings and everything in between. While unionist politicians speak of the Northern Ireland Protocol as a constitutional and business wrecking ball, he says the vast majority of his members view it very differently, as it guarantees continued access to the European single market, as well as Britain. Having unfettered access from sales from Northern Ireland into GB and access to the EU market is absolutely critical in order to to grasp that opportunity that we have. Based in Dunmurray on the outskirts of Belfast, Brookvent manufactures energy saving ventilation systems. It employs 140 staff with its distribution headquarters in Poland and offices in a number of European cities including Moscow and Dublin. Managing Director Declan Gormley sees the protocol as a solution to potential trading problems caused by Brexit. I think what we really want to do is, of course, mitigate some of the difficulties there are with it. And, you know, let's be clear, there are. It is not, it's cumbersome. But those are minor issues in the grand scheme of things. I think it's the bigger picture here strategically. The protocol is something that Northern Ireland should cherish and develop because it will offer significant opportunity. Andy says there's no evidence to support claims that is causing serious damage to the local economy. I can tell you as a businessman, it's harder to recruit people today than it has ever been. You know, and we have jobs we might have filled in maybe two to three weeks, it might take two to three months now. Because the market, the employment market's full, uh, salaries are increasing. Those are not evidence of an economy in freefall, those are evidence of an economy that's trading and strong and robust. Just over 60 kilometres south in Warren Point in County Down, Delhi Lights manufactures a wide range of fresh and frozen sandwiches, wraps and similar products. They are sold throughout Ireland and Britain, as well as a number of countries in mainland Europe and as far afield as Dubai. Chief Executive Bran Reid also sees the protocol as a recipe for success. It's been nothing but positive. We've, we've done very, very well. On the fresh side of the business, we've been able to replace some of the supply of sandwiches coming over from the UK. So the likes of the large multiples here in Northern Ireland would have brought a lot of sandwiches across the Irish Sea every night. Um, so we picked up quite a bit of business from that, where the retailers are looking to source more locally and reduce their carbon footprint by sourcing on the island of Ireland. So yeah, our fresh business has taken off significantly. But also on the export side, because of where we are based in Northern Ireland, we have access to the UK market, the Irish market, and then into Europe. So being here in Warren Point, we're really well strategically placed to be able to export anywhere in the world. 190 kilometres north in the village of New Buildings on the outskirts of Derry, Fleming Agri is in its 150th year. Well, we manufacture a range of agricultural equipment and machinery uh, for use all over Ireland, the UK, and we sell as far away as uh, Australia, New Zealand, the USA and all over Europe. Chairman George Fleming believes problems caused by the protocol have been overstated and he's confident his business and others will adapt. We go back as far as the, the Civil War, the partition of Ireland, First World War, Second World War, foot and mouth, BSE, the pandemic, I mean, financial crisis, partition of the punt from the pound. I mean, those have all been major, major crises for various generations. Uh, and we're still here and we're bigger and stronger than ever. Increasing speculation that the UK will soon trigger Article 16 and suspend the protocol is causing concern that businesses in Northern Ireland could suffer if the EU retaliates with tariffs or other barriers to trade. Manufacturing NI Stephen Kelly says the stakes couldn't be higher. Northern Ireland's manufacturers bring in £15 billion worth of external income. That's the same amount of money 
that the Northern Ireland Executive gets from London to run public services. Without our manufacturers, without access to those markets, those manufacturers can't bring that cash and we can't have an economy in Northern Ireland. And that was Stephen Kelly of Manufacturing NI, ending that report from our Northern editor, Vincent Kearney. Lithuania has entered a state of emergency in the past few hours as it tries to lead with increasing numbers of people trying to get into the country illegally from Belarus. Reports from neighbouring Poland say that two large groups of people, mostly Kurds from Iraq, breached a border fence and entered the country from Belarus too, although some were caught and sent back. Now the EU, as you'll know, has accused the Belarusian authorities of luring people from Southeast Asia, the Middle East and Africa with the promise of easy entry to the EU as part of what it has called an inhuman gangster-style approach. Well, Channel 4 News, Porik O'Brien is on the Polish-Belarusian border and he joins us this morning. Porik, will you tell us exactly where you are and what you have seen so far? Yeah, sure, Audrey. Um, We're about a 30-minute drive from a place called Kunitsa, and that's a border crossing between the Polish and Belarusian border. Uh, we went, we tried to get to the border crossing last night actually, but there's an exclusion zone that the Polish government have imposed, which runs pretty much all along the 250 mile border between Belarus and Poland. So when we tried to approach the crossing last night, we were met with border guards and police who told us to turn around. The reason that exclusion zone exists is because the Polish government, well one of the reasons is because the Polish government want to make sure that charities and in particular journalists don't get into the exclusion zone. Because this is very much a sort of a hybrid and information war as well. So why does that exclusion zone exist in the first place? Over the summer we've seen thousands of migrants and refugees arriving into Belarus and this all reached a climax the day before yesterday when we saw a group of almost 2,000 refugees and migrants uh, walking along a road in Belarus making their way to this particular border crossing. There was a standoff there the day before yesterday between border guards and police and migrants. We saw migrants attacking the fence, some of them trying to cut the the wire and they were met uh, in a very heavy-handed way, shall we say, by the Polish border guards. The people that are escorting those migrants and refugees, by the way, are the Belarusians. So we have this awful situation, really, where we have large groups of migrants and refugees, families in the mix as well, and they are literally stuck between the Belarusian authorities, the Belarusian border guards on one side and Polish soldiers on the other. And have they any shelter, any food? Because the temperatures are dropping fast there. Well, there are some charities on the Belarusian side are managing to get to some of the people. But you're right. I mean, we we were out last night, late into the night, along this exclusion zone. And it is bitterly cold here at night. And it's only going to get worse. And of course, there's a bigger geopolitical picture here as well. Because the kind of imagery we're seeing you know, triggers something in the EU's collective psyche and reminds politicians in the European Union of those images we saw during the height of the refugee crisis. So as well as being sort of stuck between two sets of soldiers, if you like, these people are stuck between two different narratives also. The Belarusian uh, leader, Alexander Lukashenko, who's been dubbed the last dictator in Europe, is weaponizing misery. He's using, he's facilitating the travel of these people by handing out tourist visas like confetti to migrants and refugees, and then when they reach Belarus, his troops are escorting them to the border. We spoke to a Yemeni uh, refugee who said that um, what actually happens is when they arrive at the border fence, border guards will, Belarusian border guards will say to them, no, don't, don't go in this way, try this way, and escort them to a breach in the fence. So that's the sort of practical way that um, Lukashenko is weaponizing this. And he's doing that to punish countries like Poland and Lithuania for pushing sanctions against his regime. Very good to have you on our programme this morning, Porik. Porik O'Brien there from Channel 4 News on the Polish-Belarusian border. 
have your social contacts to combat the rise in COVID case numbers. That was the message from Chief Medical Officer Dr Tony Houlihan at the Neffet briefing yesterday. Additional restrictions are not being recommended at this point in time, but case numbers last week were the third highest in the whole pandemic. And with Christmas lights signalling the return of party season, where is this all heading? Cork GP Dr Mary Favier is COVID advisor to the Irish College of General Practitioners and a member of NEFIT is on the line. Good morning, Dr Favier. Good morning. I mean, given all the statistics, where is this heading from your surgery to our hospital wards? There is an exceptional force of infection of, of the Delta virus going around and it's it's really being felt, particularly in general practice, with, with really very significant, very busy surge in, in both COVID activity and in non-COVID activity. But it's being felt through testing, it's being felt through tracing and through the emergency departments, admissions, ICU. So, yes, indeed, we're at our third highest ever set of cases in in the last week. And we now we're in the position of having more cases than, than the UK, which which is indeed mm-hmm. saying something. So eighth in Europe and, and we're, we're behind the countries who have very low vaccinations. So we're starring in ways that, that are somewhat unfortunate and, and we will have to address it, unfortunately. And last week, the message was personal responsibility. This week, it's have your social contacts. Neffet is meeting today, I understand. Are further measures necessary to get this under control? I think at the moment we're 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 holding steady, uh, just, but 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 everything in in the in the health system and in, in general practice in particular, but also through the hospitals is under strain, and we really do need to look at at how we want to achieve things over the next number of weeks and into Christmas. And the advice to have your contacts is appropriate. The number of close contacts of any positive case is rising every is week on week. We're up at six, mm-hmm. six and seven cases. We've very high positivity rates. So. We, as GPs, what we're seeing is that we, the population is largely falling into two halves. Those who feel that it's over or don't want restrictions or want to get on with their lives, all entirely understandable. I have bits of that myself. And then those who are, who are anxious and those who are starting to retreat back in home and getting very concerned both for themselves, but also for the vulnerable in their families. And this advice of not to, to visit your granny after going to a football match is good advice. And it should be for at least a week afterwards. So there's a lot of knock on negative effects of this as well. Mm-hmm. The, ve- the very elderly populations, we of GPs have been trying to encourage to get back out, get walking, reduce their frailty that has occurred over the last year. Unfortunately, we're retreating to that again. So a lot of knock on effects. We have seen in the uh, in the figures to date, though, that the um, the boosters for, for very much older people, uh, that they are having an impact. So is extending the booster rollout the only way we are going to have a meaningful Christmas this year? Extending the booster rollout as it has been in the last week or two, as authorised by NIAC, is making a difference. So the case numbers are rising in all age groups except the over 85s, which is really you know reassuring. But some of that is because they're doing a fairly extreme version of cocooning, which you know has its problems. Boosters to the over 60s are being rolled out and to frontline healthcare workers and immunocompromised are getting a third dose. But it's only part of the, the answer. Waning immunity is not the biggest issue. It's ac- our social behaviours. And we're, we're a social group of people. We like to meet people with bigger families. The winter is coming and we need to look at, at how all all of that mm-hmm. is managed and just try and do less in the next week or two because these case numbers are continuing to rise and we haven't reached the peak yet. Well, this is the question. And my next question, the prediction has been that this wave would peak at the end of November. Uh, Is that guaranteed? Can we be reasonably certain the cases will peak at the end of November? Or could I mean, for instance, you know, there's 11 counties where the incidence is over 1000 cases per 100,000 people. Cork is one of them. Could that go on rising into December? Potentially. I mean, if COVID has taught us anything is that there are no guarantees. It's so much of it is unpredictable and we have the huge benefit of vaccination. But unfortunately, the cases, you know, it's an incredibly infectious virus. The cases are continuing to rise. And there is only so far that our hospital system can take the strain. And we're starting to see the knock-on effects now with, with num- rising numbers in primary school children. It's knocking into staffing. We've seen it in our own pr- practice where, you know, staff members have to stay home to mind children who are unwell. People are having to come out of work. There's an, you know, an encouragement to go back to work, to working from home. So there's a lot of challenges in, in wider society. So there's nothing we can do to predict 
entirely what the, where the numbers are going. But it is possible that we won't see the peak into December. And again, 450 cases a day in primary schools, as we were hearing uh, Anne Horan tell Mary earlier in the programme. How soon is antigen testing going to be brought in for the schools which have been crying out for it for months? The introduction of antigen testing is is an operational you know, issue for the HSE and working closely with the schools. Uh, and it, it's expected in the next number of weeks to be fully rolled out. But that's that's an issue for the HSE to, to, to answer. I think the schools are doing an extraordinary job and the teachers in mm-hmm. them, you know, really holding the line, trying to keep everything functional and seeing, unfortunately, things like the Christmas play is going to be cancelled again or face to face, you know, te- parent teacher yeah. meetings. So there's a lot of knock on effects in society that we need to be aware of. And for those listening out there who think it doesn't impact on them because of the they've either been vaccinated or they've had COVID, it will inevitably impact on their wider community and their wider family. And that we we just need to dig into this social solidarity again of all trying to to mm-hmm. to, to do it for those who are, who can't do it for themselves, whether it's the small children or the vulnerable in our communities. It's just in terms of that social solidarity again, you, lo- you look at the streets, you know, the little I have been out, uh, you see younger people out and about. Has Neffet lost the room there? There's only so young, so long people can go on being scared and it clearly seems for a lot of younger people they're not so scared anymore and they want to live again. And it's entirely understandable that they're not scared uh, you know, in the sense of the impact on younger people is, is relatively low. Um, and it's not just younger people who, who have the high infection rates. It's across all age groups. So there, there's no there's nothing valuable about uh, about targeting a particular age group. It's for us all to do. It's uh, for us all to hear hear the messages and to do us. You know, and we still need to address all the healthcare that's not COVID related. And for GPs, that's a really absolute priority for us because we lost almost a year of non-COVID activity and we're trying to catch up and it's making us so busy but there's only you know it's not for us to to swag the finger at any particular age group we all need to do it and it needs to be conversations across dinner tables again in within families and again about protecting those in families who are more vulnerable and asking our young people if you are out socialising literally truly don't visit your granny the week afterwards. We saw last January uh, we paid a very high price for some kind of meaningful Christmas. Again, given what you're seeing with RSV, norovirus, vomiting bug, flu hasn't hit hard yet. Uh, what are your fears for the hospitals in January? Well, in general practice, first of all, th- there's a sense of foreboding about about the winter in terms of the huge surge to come, trying to keep services upright, trying to keep staff uh, at work. And and we would really ask people to be very patient You know, w- when they are calling. We know there's delays on the telephone. We know there are delays getting appointments. And there would be concern about our hospital services as they're starting, unfortunately, to cancel elective procedures and surgery, surgeries that have been cancelled or delayed for the last year. And we need to do everything to try and protect those services, but also to really try and support our, our hospital co- colleagues who are there on the ground, the, the nurses, the doctors, mm-hmm. all the other ancillary staff who are now facing into a second year of this and, and they need a lot of support. Cork GP, Dr Mary Saviour and COVID advisor to the Irish College of General Practitioners. Thank you very much indeed. Sean Binder from Castle Gregory in County Kerry is going on trial in Greece next week, charged with people smuggling, membership of a criminal organisation and espionage. The 27-year-old, who's one of 24 people charged in connection with their humanitarian work, denies all charges. Sean was arrested in Lesbos in 2018 while volunteering for the NGO Emergency Response Centre International. Amnesty International says the Greek authorities are making an example of humanitarian workers who are simply trying to help refugees. Reporter with RT's Foreign Desk, Juliet Gash, spoke to Sean from London yesterday as he prepares to go on trial. Juliet joins me now. Tell us a little more, Juliet, about the background to this, please. Well, Sean Binder moved to Ireland aged five, having been born in Germany, and he spent his whole childhood in County Kerry with his mother, who's German. He studied at Trinity College in Dublin before taking on a master's in international relations at the London School of Economics. And Sean says he, like many people, I suppose, around the world, were moved by the images of three-year-old Alan Curdy, whose body was washed up on a Turkish beach while he and his family were trying to reach Greece. 
So in 2017, Sean went to Lesbos, an island off Greece, to volunteer with a non-government organisation. I specialise in defence and security policy in university. I also have a background as a rescue diver in the, off the coast of Kerry. There is a, a diving school where I trained as a teenager. And so I felt I had a policy understanding and I had the relevant skills. And that's why I went. Ironically, I decided to go with the most transparent organization I could find, a Greek search and rescue NGO that had a very good relationship with the authorities. Ironically, I say, of course, because despite having worked transparently with the Coast Guard and standing shoulder to shoulder with the police officers, we were in fact eventually arrested by them. So how then, Juliet, did it come to this situation that Sean and a colleague were arrested? Well, he says at first, like you heard there in the clip, that he and his co-workers at ERCI, Emergency Response Centre International, had a really good working relationship with the Greek authorities and they were regularly in touch with them. In fact, he cites the example of lending them blankets at one point when the authorities had run out because they had a warehouse full of them. But then in February 2017, having been in Lesbos for around four months at that point, they were arrested by Greek police and spent two nights in jail. But then in August, they were arrested again. And this time we were charged formally with really heinous crimes, including smuggling, being part of a criminal organisation, fraud, money laundering, and even espionage or spying. And we spent three and a half months in pretrial detention waiting for trial. That must have been a, a very worrying experience. It certainly was an anxious time. Um, Sean describes it as being particularly for his friends and family, while obviously it must have been for himself too, but especially a difficult time for his mother, particularly as the charges were so serious. He says that the gravity of the charges meant that he was in prison with violent criminals, including men who were charged with murder. So he and his supporters were all thrilled when he was eventually released just before Christmas in 2018. And uh, it's taken almost three years now for the matter to come to trial. This obviously shines a light on the wider issue of the refugee crisis in which, you know, thousands of people have died since 2014 trying to cross the Mediterranean. Does Sean have any regrets? No, and, and that's what's quite impressive, I have to say, when you're talking to him. I mean, he's obviously, as you hear in the clips, he's a very well-spoken young man, but he's obviously very committed to this. And he says that the people he helped, and bear in mind, Uh, In his words, it was more often than not by just giving people a blanket, a bottle of water, some minor first aid. He says these were just normal people. Some of them were wealthy, some of them were not. Some of them were polite and grateful, some of them were not. He says that they were all just in search of a better life. And Sean says that in, in 2015, Europe was heavily involved in search and rescue operations in the Mediterranean. But that mission changed to one of protecting Europe's borders from what Europe would say is illegal immigration. And here's Sean again. So they view this issue not as one of loss of life, but because they view it instead as an issue of smuggling. And therefore, they view anybody that tries to provide assistance as being part of smuggling, not a search and rescue, because that's the logic through which they view this issue. And therefore, we are naturally cast, unfortunately, as being complicit in this problem. So here we are, Juliet, and as you say, the trial now starts next week. That's right, Mary. The trial starts on Thursday, November 18th. Um, Sean Binder will be travelling to Greece to uh, to face that trial. He says he never thought of trying to avoid it, as he maintains he never did anything wrong and that he and his legal team will be able to show that. Juliet Gash, for now, thank you very much. A new supercomputer to forecast the weather. What's not to like? The announcement from Met Aaron in conjunction with three other countries is being made today, World Science Day. Let's talk to Owen Moran, director of Met Aaron. Owen, good morning. What's a supercomputer when it comes to the weather? Well, uh, a supercomputer is a, a, special, a very special computer designed to uh, process massive amounts of data and calculations in seconds. Um, there's been a massive silent revolution in the ability to forecast the weather over the 40 years, and this is because of two things, really. 
uh, first because of the real-time availability of huge amounts of weather data from things like satellites and weather balloons and ground stations around the world. And the second reason is this amazing ability we now have to process all these data and actually to conduct calculations. Uh, the performance and speed of supercomputers is measured in a thing called petaflops. And this supercomputer is, is four petaflops. That's four with uh, 10, uh, sorry, 15 zeros at the end of it in terms of calculations per second. Um, and that, that's called a, a quadrillion. Um, and to kind of get our head around what a quadrillion is, if we asked everybody on the face of the planet, that's about 7.8 billion people, to conduct half a million calculations, in one second, it still wouldn't be as fast as this, as this supercomputer. Wow. So it's a, a really big machine. It, it sure is. And you're cooperating with who on this? Uh, we're very excited and really happy with this progressive uh, cooperation with the Dutch and the Danish and the Icelandic Met Services. Uh, these are our neighbours and we're coming together to deliver a common shared state-of-the-art computer. It's going to be located in Reykjavik and it's going to serve all our individual national forecasting needs to better serve the Irish public and to leverage the very best of international science and technology and research and combine it, of course, with this new supercomputer to produce the very best forecast, which is very important, obviously, in the context of high-impact weather events. Yeah, and it's going to run on 100% renewable energy. Um, I think you're going to have three times more weather predictions every hour than you do at the moment. It's not built yet, though, Owen, is it? No, uh, we're announcing the signing of the contract today uh, and the HPE, who are the successful contractors, are building the machine at the moment and they'll be delivering it in the middle of next year to Reykjavik. After that, we'll be starting an elaborate and rigorous uh, testing process to start testing our mathematical models and make sure everything's working during the commissioning. And we expect it to be up and running around this time next year. And presumably the hope is that this will, in, 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 when it comes to extreme weather events, when it comes to climate change, etc., you're going to help communities from across the board be more resilient to climate change. That's exactly that's what this is all about, of course, is, is providing the public with more localised information, more relevant information, more information on the impacts of weather. And during an extreme weather event, ensuring more timely and accurate weather information is available. And this is important for the whole economy and for all of us in society, especially as climate change impacts on the nature of weather and the extreme um, nature of weather. Um, it, it's, it's, this, this, these forecasts, these warnings that we'll be able to provide will be more important for improving transport safety, marine safety, helping the agriculture sector protect and better manage crops, helping communities at risk from flooding and of course in general supporting emergency managing and management um, and just really helping people to give more time to protect their lives and protect their homes and their businesses and this is the fundamental basis of our mission is to protect life and property and promote societal and economic well-being when we do that we're doing our job well well thank you very much indeed Owen Moran director of Met Erin A range of Irish artwork going up for auction at Sotheby's, including paintings from the collection of Michael Smurfett, and you can see them at an exhibition until Sunday at the Royal Hibernian Academy in Dublin. The paintings include work by Jack B. Yeats, John Lavery, William Orpen, Paul Henry, Louis Labrocchi and George Dillon. Charles Minter is Head of Irish Art at Sotheby's. He's with us now. Uh, Charlie, Good morning. Good morning. Uh, tell us more. What's in this collection and, and why is it up for sale? Um, so we have um, a group of 17 works from the collection of Michael Smurfett, um, which were formerly in the K Club, um, which uh, have since been sold and the collection of art is now with us. Um, and it's part of a collection um, which we're selling alongside other groups um, of art and sculpture from private collections. So in all, there's about just over 70 works um, from a range of collections, uh, many of which have never been seen before. Um, and they're part of our annual Irish art auction, um, which are, are on view for the next few days. Um, then they'll be back in London for an exhibition before the auction on the 23rd of November. And tell us about some of the pieces uh, that people can see if they're, uh, if they're going to, to have a look uh, over the next two or three days. Yeah, so, well, from the, um, the Michael Smurfett collection, there are some really 
fantastic paintings by the likes of, of Jan Lav- Lavery's and portraits and landscapes, um, some wonderful Jack Yates paintings um, from across his career. And of course, the National Gallery of Ireland is celebrating 150 years since the birth of Jack B. Yates. And we've got um, drawings and, and paintings right from across his, uh, his career um, at a range of price points too. Um, so there's lots of wonderful works by Yates to see. Um, and then the likes of uh, Paul Henry, um, who, who's very popular at the moment uh, among collectors, both in Ireland and internationally. But we've got some really wonderful pictures which have come, um, a couple have come from uh, collections in America where they've been tucked away pretty much since they were painted in the 1930s. So it's the first time they will be seen in Dublin and the first time uh, members of the public will have a chance to see these works. Um, so really, yeah, um, a, a great range of paintings by many of the, the world's most well-known Irish painters. Do you have a particular favourite? Um, well, mine is, is uh, the Gerard Dillon. Um, there's a beautiful Gerard Dillon um, uh, in the west of Ireland, which uh, was his, um, he, what well, he loved there, and it inspired so much of his most iconic paintings. And there's, there's a beautiful scene uh, based there, a romantic picture, his Ode to the West, um, which has come from a private collection where it's been tucked away for 30 years, and that's now uh, coming up um, yeah, next week as well. So, yeah, lots to see. Is this happening more often, co- collections being split up and then uh, away from the public eye? I know they're going to be on view for the, for the next three days, but that's it after mm. that. That is it, yeah, but it's very much part of the, I suppose, the auction, uh, the nature of the auction uh, and the art market that these pictures have been tucked away. They generally live in private collections um, and part of the, sort of the international trade is they, they, they come up and um, they get shown in Ireland, uh, the UK, and, and they go off I say, as many as much of the pictures which come back to, to Ireland, um, as many will also be going away. But I think it's quite you know, wonderful that these paintings are not only just bought by Irish collectors, but are appreciated by um, collectors far, far and wide as well, as much as you know, impressionist art can be enjoyed by, by uh, collectors internationally too. There's a really great audience both in Ireland uh, and internationally for some really wonderful painters and sculptors. Um, and also in the in the sale we've actually got a great range of, of work by contemporary artists. Um, so um, putting a spotlight on those artists and painters who are working today. Um, and there's a really great range of work to be seen. So there's about okay. 200 years of Irish art to have a look at and it's uh, wonderful. Charlie Minter, thanks for speaking to us. Charlie is head of Irish art at Sotheby's. Primary schools are still awaiting the detail of how antigen testing of close contacts of COVID cases will work in practice. The Health Minister signalled a move to antigen testing at the weekend. Yesterday, following a meeting between the Department of Education, representative bodies and public health officials, the department said the HSE is working on a plan. Testing and contact tracing of close contacts was abandoned in primary schools in late September, much to the frustration of school principals. The INTO has welcomed this move to antigen testing in the school settings. We can talk now to Anne Horan. She's the principal of the three-teacher Carrie Kerry National School in West Limerick. She's also INTO representative for Kerry and Limerick and good morning to you Anne. Good morning. So what role do you now uh, and your colleagues see antigen testing playing in the primary school setting? Well, I, I think we're all hoping, you know, as the people on the ground every day, we're hoping that this is just going to protect our children that little bit more. That's, you know, the big our big aim. Um, you know, we're doing an awful lot in our schools since last last September. We have, you know, sanitising, we have social distancing, we have ventilation. And now we d- this year we got the air monitors and they're, mm-hmm. they're helping as well. You know, we can judge the air quality in the classrooms. And you're still using the pod system, are you? St- pods and bubbles, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're staggered breaks and that helps to protect those pods. So what is happening to us at the moment is that in a school where one child tests positive. All of the children are in school every day. Up until last September, we had a system of contact tracing that was completely taken away from us and left us with, you know, not, not actually knowing what was going to happen the next day. Um, so children, asymptomatic children, would be in school, um, you know, potentially spreading COVID-19. Um, children with symptoms are being kept at home. A lot of my mm-hmm. colleagues are telling me that the children with symptoms are being kept at home. But, then, but Anne, do you have questions or, or, or do you know how the testing would work? For example, would you and other teachers be prepared to administer antigen testing? I, I don't know how that could have, how that could possibly happen. Can you imagine if you had 13 children coming into the classroom to you, take you off their coats, little infants, take you off their coats, tying their shoes and then administering an antigen test? Mm. 
you know, I can't see how it would happen for me. So who would do it? Advice on that. Who would do it? I am thinking myself that it would have to be in the home, that, you know, contact tracing would be reinstated, and that, for example, if, if, if me as a parent was told that my child was a close contact, that I would be given a number of antigen tests, the same way as is happening you know, with adults, that I would administer the antigen test in the morning and not send my child into school if anything turned up on that. And, would of course, not to send my child yeah. into school if my child had symptoms. But we're waiting for public health advice on that. Would you have worries, or are you hearing from parents, that they have worries about maybe medicalising their, their children or uh, making children fearful about school because they're, they're facing these antigen tests? No, I'm not, I'm not hearing anything like that. And I'm finding... In, you know, in my own school, that parents are very willing to go if the child has symptoms, they're taken for PCR tests. Some parents are testing the children fairly regularly using antigen tests, and then if something shows up in that, they're taking them for PCR tests. So I can't see that. I don't think that's going to be a problem. And just, we, the, we know the numbers are high at the moment, and the the CMO yesterday asking people to, to cut their social contacts in half. Um, would there be changes in school as well? Are there any plans for the traditional Christmas plays or any activities for children, or are they all scrapped? Uh, we were told yesterday, the union was told yesterday at that meeting you spoke about earlier, that we're continuing with the guidelines that we had last year, which does mean you know that there won't be Christmas concerts, there, um, parent-teacher meetings won't be having face-to-face for now. We're hoping that all of this will turn around in the spring for the parent-teacher meetings, but last year's guidelines are still continuing. As the numbers are, are huge. We have more than 450 cases every day in primary schools. There was 6,114 children between the ages of 5 and 12 diagnosed with COVID-19 between the 26th of October and the 8th of November. The numbers are still very high They're for very you. And thank you for joining us. Anne Horn, their principal of Carrickerry National School in West Limerick. Well, it's a big day for people with family in the United States. They can visit each other once again. The U.S. government's COVID restrictions on overseas visitors who are non-U.S. citizens will mean that families can be reunited for the first time in at least 20 months. Our reporter Amy Niriada is at Dublin Airport this morning. Over to you, Amy. Good morning, Audrey, from Terminal 2, where a lengthy queue is just making its way slowly through security here with some tired, albeit excited, heads coming through the doors to cross the Atlantic again. For many of them, it'll be the first time in two years, and as we'll hear in a minute, it'll be the first time ever for others. As you mentioned there, the ban on incoming travellers to the US from European countries, including Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Switzerland and Greece, as well as Britain, China, India, South Africa, Iran and Brazil, was imposed in March while Donald Trump was still in office 20 months Later, Dublin Airport Authority says it expects 1,600 passengers to depart directly from Dublin Airport for the US today. The authority is anticipating 10,000 transatlantic passengers to travel directly from Dublin throughout the week. It was previously described as the shot in the arm needed by the tourism industry by Pat Dawson, who is CEO of the Irish Travel Agents Association, and he's been telling me about what today means for our connections across the Atlantic. Well, it means an awful lot to our industry, and uh, it means an awful lot to our family and friends, which is a a huge amount of capacity that would twos and fro's from the United States and many of us have, have families over there as such and uh, that's very important. We have to reconnect. A second very important point is the amount of business that we do with the States with many, many Irish companies based in the States and of course we have a huge amount of uh, American industry and, and businesses in Ireland and it's vital that we make this great connection and certainly it's all positive. We're all zoomed out of it and there's nothing like, you know, sitting across the table and, and discussing business and eyeball your, your potential customers and vice versa. And this is critical to, to running a business and having a business as such. And also it's very important for inbound tourism as well because it's hand in hand, both outbound and inbound as such. And, you know, there are many, many of our hotels around the country and golf course and whatever else which are American visitors, uh, frequent and spend an awful lot of money here in the country. And the last two years have been very difficult and the travel agents around the country, Pat, today must be a huge boost for them. It has been very, very difficult and, you know, we haven't got the supports 
that we deserved and uh, you know other sectors have got great sports but look we're a very resilient and our 200 odd travel agents will will drive on and we'll make the best of it and we're looking forward to a bind and a good 2022. Pat Dawson of the Irish Travel Agents Association there and as Pat mentioned it's a huge day for families who are to be reunited with loved ones after so many months apart and I've been speaking to some of those families who won't have to wait very much longer. I have a crook down the corner car. Very good. Where are you off to today? I'm, I'm going to Newark and uh, I'm, from there I'm going to uh, my son in Brooklyn. When was the last time you saw him? Um, I suppose two years Probably. and I'm looking forward to seeing them and seeing my grandchildren. Excellent. How many grandchildren do you have? Uh, two, uh, two girls, Heavy and Shira. How are you feeling about that? Is it a bit I'm emotional? looking forward to seeing them. Are you a bit emotional? Well, yes, I must admit. And you're travelling on your own today? Yes. How do you feel about that with all the, the testing? And well, it is uh, intimidating to some extent, but I'm enjoying it in one. Looking forward to the future, meeting them. Um, David O'Neill. Where are you from? I come from Bettystown. And you're going to? I'm going to Minnesota. What's bringing you to Minnesota? My partner is there. Okay, so when was the last time you would have gotten over to see her or him? Well, she was here um, two months ago. Very good. So you've not seen her since then? I haven't seen her since then. And of course, I couldn't go for the last two years practically. What's so, it like to finally be back in a queue getting ready to go? Well, this queue, I think there might be two airplanes, it's so great. <laughs> <laughs> or else people are just very eager. <laughs> well, I think so. It's amazing. They were looking for making offers to change your flight last night of up to 500 dollars euros really because it's so busy obviously because it's so busy it's overbooked so oh, this right. is not not good are you hopeful though i will have, I have my seat and everything else so good. I, i'm going i'm from ireland okay i'm from tepa florida very good what's your story why are you here this morning um well we got married recently uh, and he has to fly home before we start the immigration process for me to move over permanently. The, the reopening of the borders now to vaccinated people, will, will that benefit you? That might ease things? Greatly benefit. The, we, funnily enough, the announcement that the borders were open again was announced the day we got our date for the wedding, which we only did so early because we couldn't go to America. So, still a lovely day, but uh, it pushed things forward a bit. <laughs> Finally, Audrey, the DA would like to remind people that non-US air travellers will need to show proof of vaccination before boarding a flight to the US and will need to show proof of a recent negative COVID-19 test. Foreign visitors crossing a land border will not need to show proof of a recent negative COVID-19 test. Now, I'm off to find someone willing to sneak me into their suitcase, but for now, it's back to you, Audrey. (laughs) Good luck with that, Amy. Lovely to hear all those people uh, heading across the Atlantic for the first time in two years. And we're told that all our Lingus flights are full this morning. And Petula will be speaking to the airline's chief operations officer in the business news at 10 to 8. An academic at Trinity College in Dublin has helped Hollywood to breathe new life into a long dead language. Marvel Studios Eternals, released last Friday, features some characters speaking in Babylonian, a language that died out over 2,000 years ago. And those translations into Babylonian were provided by Dr. Martin Worthington, who specialises in the languages of ancient Mesopotamia. We'll be hearing from him in just a moment. But first of all, let's listen to an excerpt from the film. We're Eternals. We came here 7,000 years ago to protect humans from the Deviants. Why didn't you guys help fight Thanos? We were instructed not to interfere in any human conflict. By who? This is what the end of the world looks like. At least we have front row seats. And that was a little excerpt from Eternals, directed by the Academy Award winning director Chloe Zhao. The cast includes Angelina Jolie, Gemma Chan, Salma Hayek, as well as Dubliner Barry Keoghan. And Dr. Martin Worthington, who uh, did that work, that translation into Babylonian, is with us in studio. Thanks very much for coming into us. How did you become involved? 
Good morning, Rachel. Um, well, it was very exciting. I received a mysterious email that was quite non-specific and said, "Hello, would you be interested in doing something on something?" So I said yes, and by degrees it became apparent what it was. At the start, I didn't even know the name of the film. They had this code name for it, Sack Lunch, and so I knew I was working on Sack Lunch. And it was quite late when it turned out it was this huge thing, and I was absolutely delighted. What did you have to do? So they would send me、um, the scene in English, and I would sit down and think how to convert it into the ancient language I study, which was sometimes easy and sometimes extremely difficult.、Uh, and once I settled on whatever I thought was appropriate, I would then record it、um, with my mobile phone and send it out into the ether for the film's dialect coach to take on to the actors. So they would be able to hear what it sounded like. Exactly, that was the idea. Tell us about Babylonian. When was it last spoken? Well, we think it died out somewhere between 500 BC and the year zero. There isn't a year zero, but you know, for convenience,、mm-hmm. um, it appeared on the scene in writing. Oh, round about 2000 BC. So it was a language with a very, very long recorded history. And these were an incredible people. A lot of the famous names: Hammurabi, the first law code; Nebuchadnezzar, who beautified Babylon and turns up in the Bible. These were Babylonian kings. They invented mathematical astronomy. They had a huge literature. Gilgamesh is a poem in Babylonian. So. There's more of them around than one might think. How does a person become an expert in Babylonian? <laughs> well, I think there's always a story to how someone ends up doing something、um, sort of minority-related. In my case, I started out with ancient Egypt because you know Egypt is amazing. It's got the pyramids and the sacred crocodiles and the mummies, and we all know that and we love it. And then we had a very charismatic and intelligent lady professor at UCL who kept on telling us that if we were really interested in the ancient Middle East, then we needed to know the languages of ancient Iraq. So I went to Germany to study these languages, and somehow we clicked. I think it was the first time in my life I'd really come across something I understood, and I realised that that was a subject for me. It is a fascinating story. What what does Babylonian sound like? Well, I can give you a clip if you're interested. Oh, do do do, please.、Um, oh, so one of my favourite lines in Babylonian literature is when it's describing the flood, because we do have the story of Noah and the ark in Babylonian, like in the Bible, and it says a dark cloud went up from the root of heaven, that means the horizon, and the cloud appears at the end of the line. So it's ilama ishdu ishid shamer. And the word "dark" or "black" is at the very end of the line, so there's sort of crescendo of sinisterness. But there are also lighter moments. There are love poems. There are inscriptions by kings. You know, Yinashanegeria anamat so and so lu alik. In my second campaign, I marched onto that land and I defeated them all. Blah blah blah. There are different modes, so it would probably have sounded different. Like English sounds different depending on what you're saying. Listen, it's fascinating stuff. Have you seen the film, by the way? I have.、Um, I was delighted with it. I, I thought it was a very good film in general, and of course, it's the first Hollywood film to include this ancient language. So I was over the moon. Well, listen. Thank you very much indeed for coming in to us, Dr. Martin Worthington. There. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.